the Radical Secular Podcast, dedicated to the separation of church and state and the pursuit of justice. Visit theradicalsecular.com for our full library of episodes and articles at the Radical Secular blog. Sign up for free access to exclusive content and giveaways. Email us with your comments and suggestions and follow us on social media. Welcome to the Radical Secular Podcast. I'm Joe Kipinti, and this is my first official podcast as a new member of the Radical Secular team. And I'm Sean Prophet. Christoph is enjoying some time off, and so Sean and I will be holding down the fort. Today, we're going to talk about radicalism and social justice. But as we always say on the Radical Secular, we can't understand our present or future without going back to our past. So I'll touch on some of the anthropology and evolutionary psychology that we've covered in recent weeks in episodes 29 and 31 on Richard Rangan's book, The Goodness Paradox. We'll talk about the pandemic, vaccinations, the great Texas blackout, climate change, and where the Republican Party might be headed after Trump's acquittal in the Senate on charges of inciting insurrection. But first, I want to remind you to please be sure and subscribe to our podcast. We're on YouTube and all of the major podcast channels. New episodes post every Monday at noon Eastern time. If you like our show, make sure to subscribe, leave a review, and tell your friends to listen. Also, please go ahead and check out our new website if you haven't done so already. Christoph and our resident designer, Tim Stetner, have done a fantastic job with it, really. It's called theradicalsecular.com. Peruse the site, sign up on our email list, Check out the library and the blog. We will be adding information each week and also ways to get involved and support our efforts towards secularism and justice. What do you think about it, website? Well, I'm really excited that we have a website because it's one thing to have a YouTube channel and a Facebook page, but if you have a website, then you can actually promote. You can, there's Google, comes up in Google right. searches. And one of the things we're going to be thinking about doing, I started working on transcripts. So oh. that will mean that our podcast will all, everything we talk about in the podcast will be indexed by Google and will be searchable. So awesome. I, I think that should really help our reach because what we really need to do is communicate with people. And so I'm excited. Yeah. I mean, this site is designed to be a clearinghouse of information, a place to connect with our content all of our content, and also a place for people to be able to engage with it. We really need to express our thanks to Christoph and Tim. It really is quite an endeavor to create a, a good website as they did so here. I find it's elegant and simple, and that's what exactly what I want on the website. I don't know about you. All right, let's talk t-shirts. Sean, what do you have going on this week? Well, I have, <laughs> you're going to love this, Circular reasoning works because circular reasoning works because <laughs> circular reasoning works. Awesome. I love that. <laughs> You're right. Now, let me mine. See if I can bring up a little bit. Happy humanism. Oh, I love it. So, I mean, the idea behind that is simply, yeah, happy humanism. I mean, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Happiness is a central theme in, in, in any way you want to define it, really. Human flourishing. And we do believe here that human flourishing is really a central part of this project, right? How to make life better universally for all of humanity. Yeah, I mean, so it's like, shirt. it's like, and the best thing, you know, the, I think that the hardest thing for a lot of people about happiness is they're, they're looking for happiness. And right. that's not where you find it. You find nope. it through doing things, helping people, <clears throat> making the world a better place. 
that's how you get happy. I couldn't agree more. Happiness, you have to just water the garden and then happiness will come. You don't actually try to be happy. You just do the right stuff. Yeah. Right on. So now let's get to the news. Sean, you and Christoph have talked a lot about the political situation here on Radical Secular. And so what's your latest take? Well, all I can say is that every week it gets tiring to have to repeat the same tropes about Republicans, the bottomless pit of bad faith. This week, it was just hypocrisy. Thy name is Ted Cruz. I mean, you know, it's like you would think, and the problem with Ted Cruz is that he knows he's in for a six-year term. I guess he's up right. to 24 and yep. you know, he doesn't have to worry for at least three more years. And so he's not really accountable. And I don't know that he's accountable anyway, because Texas is a heavily gerrymandered state, heavy voter suppression things yeah. like that. It's like, uh, state's falling apart. Who cares? Let's go to Mexico. You know, And it's a federally declared disaster in his state. And then it, it, at the worst possible time, pipes are bursting, people are freezing, it's, you know, it's dark, and right. you can't make this stuff up. And if it, as if it couldn't get any worse, he left his puppy home <laughs> and there was a photograph of it. So oh my God, I he's didn't got a, see that. He's got a puppy yeah. named Snowflake and the Snowflake is like sitting there looking out his door going, eh, I'm home alone. And plus he got busted on text messages by one of his wife's uh, friends who was on a group text. I mean, you know, if you're a Nazi or a hypocrite, watch those group texts. And so the other thing that happened this week is honor culture has become dishonor culture as a lot of Republicans have been lionizing and eulogizing Rush Limbaugh who died. And you got Lauren Boebert, who, you know, the one who brings her guns to every Zoom meeting and... Now she wants to fly our flags at half staff for Rush Limbaugh, and he's one of the most dishonorable Americans in recent memory. And also flying flags at half staff for people who are not government or military is against the flag code. I mean, he was given the Congressional Medal of Honor, Rush Limbaugh, which is just such a travesty of justice, honestly. Now, that man, I've been, I, I followed him along the way to some extent, not that I listened to him, but I followed his shenanigans from the 1980s. I think he started in the 70s. I think it was when he got his, his uh, radio talk show the first time he was on. He didn't kick but, into high gear until the Fairness Doctrine was repealed because it used to be you couldn't sit there for three hours on uh, the radio and talk about right-wing bullshit. That's true. And I, probably about the, right, the, the time he be, really became popular, although I did know of him before then. But he really, he was just a, a Cold War culture warrior from the get-go. He was out to really make a name for himself, get rich by promoting this right-wing agenda, this cultural agenda about the evils of liberals and, and the dangers of having multicultural society and all of that. He, he, I mean, everything that we see today that we find abhorrent about the Trump movement and Trump himself, this guy was the gen he was part of the genesis of it i would i wouldn't say he was the only one but and any anyway, things like he celebrating when during the aids epidemic when mm -hmm. someone would die of aids literally oh, yeah. celebrating on a ritualistic basis i mean that's just abhorrent well you saw that happen at the reagan white house uh, so you know where this is all coming from larry okay. speaks who was reagan's press secretary there's he's on tape with about an eight minute rant making fun of HIV as Americans were dying. And it's very, the link between Reaganism and Trumpism is very clear. Rush Limbaugh is right in the middle of all that. 
And of course, he invented the word feminazi. Yes, he did. Yeah. That period when AIDS was really, I mean, just a very serious situation. It was frightening. I mean, it's very similar to some of the feelings we've had with this pandemic. But I'll tell you, it was not a small matter at all. People who weren't around then don't realize just how serious of an issue it was, how frightened our, our, you know, people were, how nation was, the world really. And this is, here's a guy just like joking and making fun and celebrating people dying of this disease. And this is who gets a Congressional Medal of Honor. It's just sickening to me. No, well, it's 700,000 people have died of AIDS in, in the United States. Right. So. It's, yeah. I know it's over a longer period of time, but it's right up there. It's you know worse than COVID deaths yeah. at this point. <clears throat> yeah. For now. Yeah. Uh, speaking of, we should probably talk a little bit about that. The cases, as you probably have seen, have gone down quite dramatically in the last month. We peaked out at about 250,000 seven-day average a day, and now we're down to less than 100,000 a day. And that's a great it's really guardedly good news. I don't, it's hard to say what's actually happening because we have these other variants coming up. Yes. So are the tests catching all those variants? We'd, I feel like we're flying a little bit blind. Well, first, two things. There are less tests happening too. The number of tests have gone down fairly dramatically as well. So that's partly an artifactual reality about the cases going down. We're just testing less. And the other thing is a lot of jurisdictions have tuned down the sensitivity of the tests. So that they don't really, yeah, because it, ostensibly it was about it, it was to avoid false positives, but they tuned them down quite a bit in some places where you're not catching, you're getting false negatives. I didn't know about that. Well, the one thing you can't fake is death certificates, right? So right. we have seen the deaths come down by about oh half. yeah, yes, and hospitalizations too have gone down. So it's a real decline. There's no doubt about that. The decline is real and it's significant, but it's overstated to some extent because of the testing. And the other thing is, this was kind of expected. And the CDC is now telling us we expect another wave in March, end of March, largely due to these variants, but also because people are going to, it's predicted that people will relax their vigilance and believe and start acting more in ways that, that, that can promote catching this disease. So the combination of those two things, the scientists are expecting another wave. It's hard to say how big it's going to be. Hopefully it won't be as big as this last one. But there's also some interesting news happening in terms of what we're finding out about these vaccines. And the news is there. It's really good. I mean, this mm -hmm. is, there was this really good study that just came out of Israel looking at this defined level of detail about how effective this vaccine was. The funny thing that they discovered was, I think that one was mm -hmm. Pfizer vaccine, and they discovered that actually it was negative impact the first week. People actually got, uh, the number of people catching the, the disease doubled in the beginning. Mm -hmm. and, and then by the third week, it was down by like 85%, just one shot, not both shots. So one right. shot had, the, had huge efficacy. And it does suggest that probably what we should do is uh, spread out the shots further. And that's what a lot of uh, people are looking at, which is good news. It gives us a reprieve about having more doses for now. Well, one of the things that I heard this week was that they're having issues with vaccine production because of there's a special type of nanotechnology lipid that is used for the delivery of the mm -hmm. mRNA. Like we talked about on our, on the episode when mm -hmm. before, when you described how the vaccines work, well, they're apparently, they can't get enough of this stuff. Have you heard about that? 
I haven't really. I mean, I, I haven't. No, it's news to me. Well, hopefully they get there. Uh, apparently, a lot of new companies are coming in to bid on just supplying that component of the vaccine. Huh. Wow. Well, I think, I mean, what I'm seeing is that it is ramping up. I mean, we are seeing now what 1.8 million people a day getting it, something like that. So that's all good news. The other thing that's happening is the, the next generation of vaccines are being worked on very rapidly. In mm -hmm. fact, the UK is actually doing the study where they're inoculating people with SARS-2, what causes COVID. And that's new. That's never been done officially before. I mean, maybe it's done in China, nobody knows. But in terms of like, you know, what we know, this, so the difference between inoculation and vaccination is inoculation is live virus, right? That's what injecting in your body. And that they'll be able to really precisely understand, you know, levels of viral uh, load, how that correlates to catching the disease. They're going to be understand the different variants and how infectious they are. They'll be able to start to do testing of the next generation of vaccines very quickly. So that's such an amazing story, honestly. I can't say that enough about how effective this vaccine's been. So obviously, there's a lots and lots of hurdles along the way and, and problems, but in the end, it was, certainly, it could have been so much worse. Well, the thing that I just can't get over is that apparently these vaccines were largely done in a few weeks after COVID was discovered. And then the rest of the time was all about testing and making sure that they worked, but they actually had the idea and were able to synthesize a vaccine super quickly. Yeah. And guess what? We're going to, that is related to what we're talking about today in terms of, of the acceleration of technology. I mean, it's only very recently that supercomputers have been powerful enough to be able to manipulate protein folding. That's just new. And if it hadn't been for that, we would not have these vaccines. That's yeah. what, that, that was the technique that would allow scientists to be able to do this so quickly. It's, and then what, you know, what we're going to talk about is the pace of change is leading to more and more of these incredible abilities that we mm -hmm. have now. So the other thing we could, we could talk about this forever, but the other thing we, we want to talk about a little bit is the Texas situation. And I want to say there that at one level, it's just a riot how the right wing spins stuff, how they spun this to be a testimonial to the, the, how bad green energy is. It's just ridiculous. <laughs> well, I mean, it's just... It's so funny when like they hated wind turbines and green energy before this happened, like last week before anybody, or week before, before anybody knew they were going to have a blackout, they were still against it. And then all of a sudden the right. blackout happens. It's like, oh, we're against it even more. But the fact is that in large parts of the country that are having even worse weather than Texas, Wind turbines are working fine. <laughs> hey, there are turbines in Antarctica working fine. Yeah, yeah. And so, and it turned out that a lot of, it, Texas has a lot of wind. I mean, they have, I think, the right. second most wind to California, or maybe even they have the most wind in the country. But it's still only about 20% of their grid. And so- Yeah, generous. In order for wind to have caused their blackouts, right, they would have to have, like, it would have to have been a lot more than 20%. And- what the, the facts are is that the Texas grid is not connected to the rest right. of the country. That's what really, because the reason why we have reliable electricity in the rest of the country is because loads are shared and shifted as conditions change. Exactly. And one of the things that we, why we know that's true is because El Paso is connected to the national grid, not the Texas grid. And El Paso's lights never went off. 
And it's, of course, this is all related to deregulation, right? The reason why Texas isn't connected is because it was largely a way to avoid national regulations. Well, they couldn't win unless they spent more money. They couldn't meet national reliability standards. Exactly. And they weren't going to spend more money because the way the energy prices are bidded on. So corporations that provide energy have to compete with each other and they low bid each other constantly. And to do that, they have to cut corners. And then what they're cutting is all of these better equipment that can handle, can be more resilient to the weather in this case. Well, the whole point also of having regulated public utilities is that you're delivering a product to the customer at a fixed price, understanding that right. there's a lot of poor people who electricity is an essential service. I mean, maybe they have oxygen machines hooked up to it. I don't know, but it's an essential service to have reliable electricity. And there were some companies in Texas that were passing along their direct costs to the consumer. And so we had some people in Texas getting like mm -hmm. ten dollars and $15,000 electric bills. When yeah, I heard about that. What's supposed to happen is that the public utility is supposed to absorb those price spikes and still offer regulated prices to the community, even in times of shortage. That's the whole point. Where do you find unfettered utilities in the world? Right? Uh, maybe the Soviet Union. I don't know. You don't <laughs> because they don't, you know, over the course of history, we've learned that there are some benefits, utilities that we need to be regulated because we need, their, we need them to be there. We need them to be stable and the price stable, the everything. And apparently those, these lessons have been forgotten more and more. The same thing when neoliberalism first really started to spread around the world of places like Argentina, mm -hmm. they started deregulating everything. They started privatizing everything. And it was an unmitigated disaster for a lot of countries. Right? It's a disaster. Th There's a bargain for this. Okay, The bargain is that utilities can borrow money by floating bonds that are tax exempt, municipal bonds, right? right? And the government gives them that ability to keep interest rates low and they get a guaranteed rate of return and investors get a, a tax break. So everybody wins on that deal and consumers get low energy prices. <laughs> and absolutely. And it also is a real testament to inter how interconnected the modern world is, how modern society. I mean, the electricity goes down, everything else goes down. The water systems freeze, pipes freeze, burst. You have all kinds of water issues when you can't heat homes. The vaccines that have to be stored in cold Refrigerated, refrigerated unit, what happens to them? And, and it's been really disrupted. I mean, everything relies on these utilities. And when they go down, everything else around them goes down. So we can't mess around. We can't, all right, maybe you can save a few cents by having some competition, but on a very temporary basis, right? It's penny wise, pound foolish. There's just, Absolutely. it doesn't work. And there's three or four things that you have to have in order to have civilization. And that is power, water, sewer, <laughs> and information, right? I mean, yeah. you, without those four things, you're in the dark ages. Yeah. Yeah. And so like this was expected, right? The, this kind of a weather pattern, this weather extreme is nothing new. Despite the fact that I was talking about all these records, yeah, it, the number of really of cold snap has decreased and lessened in the last half a century because of climate change. When I was a kid, 40 below zero in the middle Great Plains was not a big deal. It happened. Well, and the thing about it is in Texas, they had this happen 10 years ago. They've been warned right. by everybody. Like everyone who knows anything about power grids has been warning Texas about this problem. And they didn't require, all they would have had to do is winterize their pipes. Yeah. A lot I mean, of these plants. It, it was a little more money. 
but not a lot more money, honestly, considering the consequence. And the other thing is, you feel, well, how, this cold is, again, being used as sort of like questioning the fact that the earth is warming, which is ridiculous, absolutely ridiculous. And I just want to take a couple of minutes just to explain why, for people who might be wondering. In January, there was a, a, a massive heating event that happened in the Arctic. I don't know if you knew about this, where the stratosphere heated up to 100 degrees warmer than usual. I mean, it was a very significant. And these things do happen in nature, but they've been happening more and more frequently and more and more intensely. So what does that do? That disrupts the polar vortex system, which is a set of winds that keeps the cold air relatively confined to the north. And, you know, it's like if you think about like if you think about like water uh, flowing down a, a hill, if the hill's not very steep, the water meanders. There's like loops in it and stuff. But if you, on a steep hill, the water will be straight because there's more energy from gravity pushing that water faster and faster. So with speed comes a more sort of a, a linear pattern. And so the energy that keeps the winds linear and, and relatively linear that circumnavigate the globe around the poles is the difference between the polar temperature and tropical temperatures. That's what does it. That difference in temperature creates the winds. And the bigger the difference, the more powerful the winds. And so when in the last 40 years, the Arctic has warmed up by five degrees or so, tropics have not. They have not warmed up hardly at all. Overall, the Earth has warmed about 1.2 degrees Celsius. The tropics hardly at all. The poles a great deal. So that differential has gotten a lot weaker. And so what happens to the polar vortex, it breaks up into chunks that allows very cold air to filter down into temperate regions. And that it's a perfectly predictable a sign that this was going to happen, have been predicted, and now it has happened. Yeah. And I think that because of the way you can't talk to Republicans like you just explained, they don't, they're not going to accept that explanation. They, their brain immediately goes to, well, I thought it was supposed to be warmer. What happened to global warming? And it's just, that's it. That's the end of the conversation. And, and I'm going to talk a little bit later about systems uh, I have in the show when we get to that point. But that this is what's going on. Is this ant We've had a, a 40 years of anti-system thinking. And so yeah. you don't get people who are even ready for explanations like you just gave. Well, that's true. I mean, I think there's, there are people that are open to these explanations, but they, they're not the ideologues. That's for sure. They're not the people with the agenda. They're not the, in the right wing. It's really been one big, giant, massive conglomerate of conspiracy theories around this climate change issue. This is not going to touch them. Right? What I say is not going to matter one iota to any of these people. But I know that. Well, maybe some of the losses that they've experienced, I, I know that they will tend to try to project those onto Democrats somehow, because that's what they always do. But at a certain right. point, at a certain well, point, in Texas, you get enough pain it's got to get through at some point to understand. One would hope so. <laughs> One would hope so. Yeah. Well, the other thing, let's finish up with the news of something fun and positive. Let's, uh, I mean, Sean, tell, tell me about this rover on Mars. I mean, I know you are all into that. Oh my God. It was just such a, a contrast seeing this amazing, and it was even more amazing than we thought because initially it was like, we're watching this kind of simulation 
of it landing. And of course it's 11 minutes or something for the signal to get back. So yeah. it's already either landed or crashed and we just don't know it yet. So that's what makes watching the Mars landing different than something in, you know, earth orbit or the moon, because right. there's no instant feedback. So this Rover's on its own and all of the different stages it had to go through the parachute coming out, jettisoning the clamshell, all these things. And then, so we hear that it lands and we see it transmits one picture, but later on, we actually got an image of it landing. Yeah. We had another spacecraft in orbit around Mars that actually right. took a picture of the lander landing. And then we had the lander itself, which had a camera in the crane and was yeah. taking a picture downward of the actual landing. And it's just like the fact that we can have that going on and do those kinds of amazing things juxtaposed with the other crap that we're dealing with on earth is it's head snapping. It is. And it goes to show that it's unnecessary. All this craziness is completely unnecessary. It is not a technological issue. It's a political issue, right? It's an issue about priorities and will. Because we could apply the same ingenuity to a lot of the problems we have on Earth. And we're just not. We're we, not doing it. We know how to do so much more than what we're doing. I mean, and half of our civilization and culture is on its way to Star Trek. And I, you know, I use, yeah. we use Star Trek on this show all the time. I know it's the fantasy. Okay. I know it's not anything history, but what the, the, the cool thing about Star Trek and the reason why I talk about it so much is because it is, it's not, it might not be the future we get, but it's a future that we could have if yes. we play our cards. And I mean, I could visualize it. I can visualize the, the Utopia Planitia shipyards being built on Mars to build more interplanetary and perhaps interstellar spacecraft. Yeah. Probably all the while. <laughs> the citizens of Earth are peaceful, prosperous, and happy, right? For the most part, they've managed to resolve the issues of scarcity and the Earth is unified. And humanity is now, their vision is outward towards exploring the, the galaxy. It's, it's a wonderful sort of roadmap of where we could be and go. Well, I don't know. There's not a reason, there's not a single good reason for a human being to starve right now. No, no, there isn't. There really isn't. People and, don't realize that. And what happens is a lot of times is you'll hear people on the left, people who are frustrated about poverty and injustice saying, well, how can we afford to spend all this money on space when we don't spend it here on earth? But the, the truth of the matter is that and there's an oversupply of food in the world. There's plenty of food for everybody. It's just it's a distribution problem. There's massive disparities and injustice in the way resources are being distributed, specifically how everything is prioritized for the ultra wealthy now across the planet, particularly in our country. Yeah. Even to the point of deliberately denying people food. I don't know if you saw the picture, but there were cops guarding dumpsters to prevent people from taking the food because yeah. it was expired. And so here's these people, this, this food is mostly perfectly good, but apparently by regulations, you can't give away expired food. Right. So people were dumpster diving. And I mean, it wasn't just small dumpsters. It was two 40 yard dumpsters full of really pretty good food that a lot of people could have been eating and cops were there preventing America's poor from eating perfectly good food. Yeah. I mean, I don't, I'll, honestly, I don't know what's going to happen with this administration. I I'm, I'm optimistic, but the, man, imagine if we, there wasn't even that. And we're, we're now in the point where we're facing mass hunger in this country. And thank God we at least have an administration that understands that and is willing to, to pass some policies to try to ameliorate that. Because if we had Trump had gotten elected, I mean, just that alone would have been so much human suffering. You know, we so have no idea necessary. the bullet that we dodged. No, 
and, and, and we won't know. And here's, but let me bring it back to the, the Mars story. And that is because we have to get governance right. Because if SpaceX is the one building the ships on Mars rather than Starfleet, it's not going to be democratic or accountable if Elon Musk runs it. He wants to be the emperor of Mars. And right. he, he's already shown this, that he doesn't respect international law. As a matter of fact, when he wrote this user agreement having to do with his Starlink service on Mars, he was basically saying, hey, you're, we're not subject to any Earth law. And so the guy's already trying to pull this rich guy bullshit. And so we need government organizations involved because you know that probe... The Perseverance probe is a NASA probe. It's not a private probe. And we, so we need to manage space for the good of humankind, not just like resource exploration or somebody's profit-making enterprise. <laughs> so it's a structural issue too, because if you're a corporation, you've got to make a profit at some point, right? You can only invest so much. You, by law, you have to make a profit, honestly, if you're a public company. And you can't do the long-term investment that's necessary, required to make all these leaps that we've made so far. Like the reason why we, we have computers is because of the research that was done by government prior to the corporations taking it up and, and going, making it a commercial consumer product. It was, and everything virtually is like that. The space program, certainly. You, it's got to be a balance because we know that Elon Musk his rockets are much more efficient than the original government right. rockets that were not reusable. And we know that his new, the way that he's developing the Starship and the whole new launch system is it's much cheaper and it's probably going to be a lot better, but we need a balance between that right. level, that sort of innovation and that kind of culture, the culture of JPL and NASA coming together. That's a good way of putting it. Yeah. It has to be a combination of the two working together. And we, we can't, we've got to get away from this rigid ideology about the market and all this stuff that is dominating our society. We have to do what works, what's practical, what makes sense, what's proven to work in these situations. Utilities need to have regulations based on what works, what we've known about history, right? Government-private partnerships work. They're very powerful. And private corporation, private industry does a great job at, at innovation and, and get making things cheaper and all that. All of that together, combined as, as one package. Best anyway, practices. Yeah, best practices. Again, we could go on forever, but let's move on a little bit more to our topic. Mm -hmm. And before that, since this is my first official show as a moderator here, let me tell you a little bit about myself, when we talk about discussion of, of, about power and technological change, human development, uh, let me tell you a little bit about why I'm here, letting you know why I chose to join a radical secular, why I felt I could uh, make a contribution here. Yeah. I mean, I want to just say that like, we're really super happy to have you on the team. It's now it's a really balanced team. We, we can check each other and also give <laughs> someone a day off if they need it. And Joe, you bring a, a, a measure of academic rigor to the team that we didn't have. And Christoph is the legal political expert. I'm good with tech and politics and evolutionary psychology, but I studied engineering. And so I'm self-taught in the other subjects. And so you're an actual professor who's been teaching college for a couple of decades. So <laughs> I'm really happy about that. Yeah. Well, I mean, there's wonderful things about learning on your own too. I 
as long as it's done properly, as long as you understand how to learn. I mean, it, learning on your own isn't going to a YouTube video and just listening to a talking head, right? It's about doing real research. And people can do that on their own. You can have independent scholars like, like you, Sean. I mean, that's wonderful stuff. My, I, I bring in a little bit more rigor in the sense, although I'm, I'm also a dilettante as well. And I love to just branch out and know about everything. I can't stick to my own field, although my field is awesome because it's pretty, pretty eclectic. But as a lifelong educator, I've learned the value of stepping back too and re-examining the basics on a regular basis. It, you have to reality check yourself. Knowledge is filled with eddies and currents that can lead to places where you never intended to go. And that can be a good thing. It can be a wonderful thing because you, you learn that way, but it can also take you down rabbit holes. You can, you, you can get lost. And so going back to the basics is a wonderful way to ground yourself again and say, what are my priorities? What are my goals? What are my ethics? Think about all these things. It's important to be aware of the course that you're on, is what I'm saying. Even if you do fall, go astray, at least that you're in uncharted territory, right? Yeah. With a sense of purpose, I mean, I would like to say some words about radicalism. And secularism, because it's a radical secular, is the name of this enterprise that we're doing. And then open up for a little discussion, maybe. This show is premised around secularism, and I want to express what secularism means to me, why I value it so much, and ultimately why I came to join you guys. And my general perspective about a world and a situation that we find ourselves in is very similar to what I've seen in all your episodes, and I've watched just about all of them. A general perspective is we're all we're, we're really hardcore social democrats, certainly leaning towards democratic socialists in some ways, and proponents of social justice, strong proponents of social justice, universal justice. And I share, like you guys, I share the sense of horror about what's happening with this resurgence of right wing extremism, and the resurgence resurgence of bigotry, racism, sexism, all of it. And like you guys, very resolved to stand against it. Yeah, well, I think we all share that that passion, that, and and that's what brought you to us. And I'm really happy that it happened to, to fight right wing extremism together. But I think there's also we differ from maybe the angle that we're coming at it. I mean, my my, my cult upbringing. Okay, my one of my mottos is progress isn't through better ideas. Progress requires the courage to reject bad ideas. And so I'm approaching everything from almost a negative space, like here's what doesn't work. And what's left is what works kind of thing. Because yeah. it's like you said, we already know what to do. We know how to feed everybody. We know how to go to Mars. We can't keep the lights on in Texas. It's more like we won't keep the lights on in Texas. What that does for me, my cult upbringing, it's taught me the parallels between the abuses of power in cults and religions and the abuses that take place nationally, like this Texas thing in our mm -hmm. various political cults, because they can do no wrong. And that's the way it always is in cults is, is the leader can do no wrong. Okay. And I tend to emphasize belief in, in, in leaders in, in gods in, in diagnosing what ails our nation. So I, I go after this hardcore in my speaking and my writing, but we're really a religious nation. So it can be a little bit of a tough sell because we have a lot of people yeah. who are, are still God believers, even though they're liberals and they want to break down hierarchy and they want to fix all these problems. They still ultimately are God believers. So it's a little bit of a of a tough sell. And maybe you and Christoph are a little bit less intense about that than I am, but we have the word radical in our title and in our mission statement. So everyone knows yep. whether you're on our team or you're a listener, you know what you're signing up for. 
Well, if I thought I couldn't bring in some other perspective, offer something positive, I wouldn't have joined. I mean, you guys yeah. are great ambassadors of this, of secularism. And so why am I here? Well, as a geographer by vocation, I, I often approach things by looking at the wider landscape. I focus on patterns and process directly mm -hmm. and purposefully, not as, not as a side issue, but that's the focus for me. And that makes me at the core an explorer. And just like you think about geologists, we try to locate a vein of metal by looking at a geological history of a place. You're not just going to focus on the, uh, finding the, the metal. You're going to look, focus on finding the patterns that say, huh, there probably is metal here somewhere. And as a human geographer, I've done the same thing with culture. The landscape of culture and politics and economics is why are we seeing what we're seeing? What to look for? What are these patterns? Yeah, well, I really have a strong bias in my thinking towards systems. And I, I, so I appreciate what you're saying, that you can't just look at the individual problem in isolation. Right. I really enjoyed, I don't know if you've read it, the book called Thinking in Systems by Danella Meadows. It's no, kind of, I haven't. Sounds great, though. It's an older book. It's a classic, yeah. and it teaches the basic principles of systemic control through feedback. And the very first, like the first couple of pages, there's a picture of a bathtub with a faucet and a stopper. And these are your basic right. controls on the system, right? And so we learned all of this stuff about control theory deeply in engineering school. Uh, you, you have to analyze the output of any system mm -hmm. that you want to control. You, you got to know what's going on. You can't just be flying blind. <laughs> so you then take that error signal. You go, oh, hey, here's a problem. All right. So you take that and you invert it, whatever the problem is, you want to invert that signal, put it back into the input as feedback. Okay. And everyone's familiar with the cruise control on your car. This is a basic feedback system that you people use every day. And so there's a sensor. You got to know how fast you're going. If you want to know how fast you want to go, right? So how fast are you actually going? You push the button. Say you want to go 70 miles an hour. Okay. If you're from that moment forward, the system is working to keep you at 70 miles an hour. And it has to know, am I going 72? Am I going 68? What should I do? So it's making decisions all the time. If you are going down a hill, then it's going to back off on the throttle. Right. If you're going too fast, if you're going up a hill, you start to slow down, increase the throttle. That's your basic feedback system. And that's, it frustrates me to no end that we don't operate our political system and our economy, our nation in this way. It's, yeah. and it's all GOP. They are the anti-science party. They refuse to measure outcomes and use feedback to correct the system because systems are incompatible with ideology, just different worlds. And so if you're a Republican and you want to run capitalism flat out without regard to the limits of the system or pollution or negative impacts, you spend your entire career preventing the establishment of feedback within the governmental system. It just drives me insane. Yeah, I, it's a great analogy. I mean, yeah, another really good analogy is the human body. We are full of systems that regulate themselves, homeostasis. Why does our body temperature stay at relatively 98.6 degrees? There's a reason for it. There's all kinds of system, systematic things, recursive feedbacks that are constantly keeping us at this, the right temperature, the right blood pressure, all that stuff. And that's how society should work as well. We should be very mindful of building our structure based on you know, a systemic approach. And we do that. Otherwise, we wouldn't be a 21st century society. But there's been a lot of backlash against it by the right in particular, not exclusively, but mostly by the right. And it's really now we're feeling the effects of it because the right has had so much power to change policy that we're feeling the effects of things going haywire. Our 98.6 isn't 98.6. It's changed. And the, the and fact what happens. It, 
The fact is that if you're a politician, the feedback loop for you is supposed to be your voters. If you don't deliver for the voters, they're supposed to vote you out. Well, in a lot of cases now, it, that's been changed. You have safe districts where they're gerrymandered and those people have no accountability. They're not going to get oh. voted out. Nope. Yeah, that's, I mean, electoral reform is really job one. We got to get that back into a sane place. We really do. Anyway, to the, just to continue on a little bit about why I'm here, on the personal level, I'm an immigrant. And I've traveled a lot in my life here and there in different countries. I've lived in very underdeveloped parts of the world, places that, I mean, that poverty is so extreme. It's unknowable unless you experience it yourself, what that means. And I know what it's like to be an outsider in that regard, which to me is a blessing because it gives me empathy. It gives me understanding of what people of color go through, what LGBTQ go through, what women go through. It gives me an understanding of that. Not that I'm placing myself in the same level, but like being an immigrant was a powerful experience growing up in America. And our world is defined by these hierarchies, as you guys talk about so much in the show, which I love, these hierarchies of power that, that really shape the, the equity and the justice and the abuses of humanity. They really are central to that. And we have to understand that as part, going back to your systems theory, right? We want to develop good systems. We have to understand the feedbacks. We have to understand the what's in those systems that's making things happen. And one of them is this, these legacy hierarchies that continue to want to stick around and re-strengthen. And religion is really central to that. Secularism is all about trying to get away from those legacies and approach governance and society based on reason, science, and human flourishing. What makes sense? It's a very pragmatic belief system. And the other thing that it does is it allows people of different ideological backgrounds, faiths, religion, nationalism, whatever, to be able to have a free playing field where people can collaborate, work together in, in, you know, in a relatively harmonious situation where there's not constant factional fighting about taking power and all that stuff. So, and, and so it's incredibly valuable a way of organizing modern society. I don't know if there's another way to really do it that's sustainable. There isn't. I don't think so. So what's up with this resurgence of right-wing populism spread across the world and so powerfully here in our own country? I mean, after so many decades of struggle and process, progress, how has racism come resurging back as it has? All these other bigotries. How did we get four years of such vengeful and hateful demagoguery? you know, this president, I mean, it's something that we need to really think about and, and really begin to assess. I mean, it's like the bathtub. How does the water level stay even, right? What are the inputs and outputs? And this is far more sophisticated and complicated, but it's basically the same process that we're thinking about here. Well, I think part of it is a problem of perception, okay? Because yeah. I always come back to two reasons. We, we've always been a nation set up for minority rule. And a lot of this has been invisible in, our, in the early part of our lifetimes because of the Civil Rights Act and things like that. But what happened under Trump is just a continuation of the Civil War as whites are facing becoming a, mi a minority in America by the early 2040s. So this is really bringing into sharp focus the lost cause of the South that's never given up. And right. it, it really is a white problem. 
and I'm white. So that makes me want to solve the problem. Okay. Yep. And, and, and you're white. And even though you came to this country as a minority, but you're still white. So oh, yeah. Yeah. We, we have, we, we work together to, to make things better because we want our group to be better. And so I, I think this really kicked into high gear for a lot of white people when Obama was elected twice and did a great job as president. I think it just changed their conception of what this country was. And Trump took advantage of that. And the second reason has to do with the shrinking Republican base in general, because people mm -hmm. are, a lot of older people are dying off and younger people are more liberal. So America got a lot more progressive after the Civil Rights Act was passed. We saw all this progress and it began to threaten financial power structures, which have used the Republican Party to protect themselves. So the trick is always, if you're the party of the wealthy, how do you get a bunch of non-wealthy people to vote for you? And they, they, this is the trick that they just do it over and over again. And they do it with racial wedge issues and religious wedge issues. It's not, that, it's not that the wealthy people are particularly racist, but they're perfectly willing to use racist to keep themselves in power. So starting in the 80s or so, we got this backlash of radical religious issues being injected into politics by the evangelicals abortion bans, school privatization, opposition to gay marriage, now the latest moral panic about transgender rights. So right. that's, I think, how we got where we are. Yeah. And then, of course, what also happened at the same time is all these changes in technology around communication and the media and the web and so forth that allowed people to just flock around their own identities and their own belief systems and, and just feed on each other and close off alternative ideas, close off a wider view, and they just got crazier and crazier. Well, it's technology. It, it really does have a lot to do with it. It's breaking down a lot of the old structures even faster yeah. than the religious can shore them up. It's, it, it, technology really has the potential to completely change what it means to be human, and it already has. And so there's a lot of religious people who are just freaking the fuck out. Yep. Yeah. In a huge way. I mean, again, I want to go back to in order to understand why it's very valuable to take a step back and take a wider, more fundamental view of things. So when in this conversation about technology and, and technological change, I want to focus on some of these synergistic effects that you've alluded to, right? Mm -hmm. And science is fundamentally also based premise on observation, right? Observation is really critical to the scientific method process. And what technology allows us to do is observe the world better and better and better. And so that in turn will ultimately change our perspective. We don't, didn't know about germs because we couldn't see them. Once we saw germs and we could come up with the germ theory, we didn't know we were at the center of the universe until we had a telescope. And then that clearly showed us what we weren't. And of course, all these changes then threaten the social hierarchies, the existing belief systems. And you get backlashes, you get resistance. And that's been the, the whole process of modernity. And these new perspectives always have to fight their way through. They have to break through the dogmas and the structures of the day, especially the ones associated with power, privilege, and hierarchy. Yeah, I mean, and that's our old hobby horse at the, at the radical yeah. secular. We've been talking about that from episode one, is this yep. conservative moral hierarchy. And privilege ultimately involves supporting unearned social rank. And... That's why we see double standards for women, people of color, immigrants. They're considered by a lot of white people, especially white men, to be subject to a different set of rules. So mm -hmm. that makes the privileged people really 
opposed to consistent rule of law. And that's where they're constantly looking for exceptions, religious exemptions. They're trying to get things rolled back. We think that everybody wants fairness, but they really don't. A, a human, the default setting, I think, on a lot of on humanity, I mean, all throughout the world is this huge innate bias toward hierarchy. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know that. I mean, it's definitely, this is definitely tribal. This definitely goes way back into our evolution. It's not new, and, but it's also impossible to separate all of this from the structures of religion where mandates come down from God through scripture and then the Pope and then a mega church leader, pastor, the average citizen is just receiving all of this at the bottom of the ladder. And then the pecking order continues in the home with women and children below the man. It's just, I don't know. Right. I mean, it's hard to say if our propensity towards hierarchy is a natural thing. I don't know if it is. Certainly there may be a component of that, but as somebody who really, I'm married to an anthropologist for 35 years, right? I, I love anthropology. I know that there's so much diversity in the way people think around the world that, that we have this Judeo-Christian tradition and that's not how everyone thinks. Hierarchy is not the same in all humans. It, it isn't, but you look at it, the same thing in India, the caste system. Yeah. These are all traditional structures. And I know that there have been more egalitarian civilizations, but it just seems like it seems like a default. Like if you don't have a good, strong structure of cooperation, then you default to this hierarchy. Right. And it's also an issue of scale too. As you scale up in terms of numbers and complexity, what organizes society's ideologies. And these ideologies are in a perfect places for people to have social power in and use. And you know, Christ, uh, religion obviously is the number one that came along. I mean, it's all related. Can you disentangle them? Only to understand them, right? Only to make sense of them, but really you can't. They're all integrated together as one thing. And so a secular point of view has to challenge that hierarchical religious point of view fundamentally. Like you said, I mean, you, I totally agree with that. Well, there's also a little bit of a tension between we needed something, we needed this common story, we need something to make us cooperate. And so tribalism and religion all kind of work together, got us to the place where we could start to industrialize and build things and, and build cities and things right. like that. And there's a symbiotic relationship as societies get larger, gods tend to get more punitive and angry because it's a management problem. You got a human management problem. Yeah. You got to motivate people somehow. <laughs> yeah. So you got to try. I think the key is going to be to figure out how to keep the good side of that cooperative spirit going forward while, while, you know, jettisoning the baggage, because as again, we, I keep, I can't not talk about Star Trek for, I think one episode of radical secular and it obviously all the tech in the show seems fantastical, but what it's really about is better methods of human relations, conflict resolution, scientific thinking, evolving beyond greed and territory. Even in the 24th century, there's still wars, but they're not between humans because we've figured out our own just, it's kind of like I look at it as the United States. We have these 50 states and they started out as being separate kind of nations. And then colonies came together, formed a, a union, had to go through the civil war. I think that could happen on a global scale as well. So the globe would be something like what the United States is today, hopefully not on the brink of civil war like we are. But you know, the key point being that humans no longer fight each other. There's global yeah. inter interplanetary governance Humans no longer suffer from resource poverty. We don't use money because there's no scarcity. Everyone has enough. How do we get there? In no universe do you get to Star Trek with today's 
form of religion intact. It's just, as we know it, religion has to go if you want that world of peace and equality. And that really has been the grand pattern of humanity. We have moved more and more towards collaboration and integration. All across, I mean, with obviously with periods of retrenchments that are very powerful and horrible, like World War II and all that. But the story has been one of disparate tribes connecting to bigger and bigger and bigger geographic groups to the point where now we're connecting as a world. It's been happening for thousands of years. Technology is very much implicated in that because we can now all communicate with each other and collaborate with each other in ways that were unthinkable even 20 years or 30 years ago. You know, and this wider view is not always easy to take. It's painful. It requires some courage because it means one has to release some of the things one holds dear, right? People, you're born into this world, you're given an education by your parents, your family, your community, your group, your, your product of your history, and then you expose these new ideas and they can be very threatening. And it, it, true education cannot really occur without this confrontation that you, everybody gets to have about themselves. And not everyone's up for it. Not everyone's ready for that journey because it's threatening, right? Realizing just how unfair the world is, not only does it hurt, but also it demands that you take responsibility and you do something about it. Anyway, that's the reason why I decided to choose to join this project uh, because I felt I could add something, that bigger perspective. And as I just mentioned, education, true education is, it can be a very uncomfortable process and it takes a bit of courage. And so we have to both examine the larger patterns that I, we've talked about, but also our own in, internal dynamics about how we see the world, what we think, how, what, how our own uh, sort of understanding of our own ethics and so forth. It all comes together. And so heading into the, to the meat of this conversation here, we're talk, going to talk about radicalism, robots, and social justice. We want to keep that in mind. Ultimately, I think we want to discuss contemporary technological transformation of our times what futurist uh, Ray Kurzweil coined the singularity in this conversation, in his popular book named Singularity is Near. Yeah. Right. Singularity is Near was, a, I think it came out like 2005. It seems like yeah. it came, but it's so, it's still current. And it, it really put some things into sharp focus for me in terms of what was possible. And it's been super accurate. I think I'll let you just take this forward, but I, I, the book, probably changed my thinking more than any other book I've ever read in my life. Wow. Yeah, it was a powerful book. And there's a lot of criticism around it, but let's really talk about what it's telling us. What, where it's really, a, he's a futurist and he's telling us about where we're heading. And, but a, as a, an academic and somebody who's a, a really into anthropology, I like to talk about the future by talking about 2 million years ago, if that's okay, <laughs> to start. <laughs> yeah. So I want to start some, I think it's a place interesting looking at early human development. It gives us a chance, to, gives me a chance to talk about my favorite, actually my second favorite early hominid after Lucy, Homo habilis, who I'm referring to here, because he's the toolmaker, right? The Homo habilis literally means a handyman. And the show is really about tools. By the way, Sean, do you have a favorite hominid? Well, it's so funny because <laughs> I, I hadn't really thought about that. I, I'm not an anthropologist, so I only know what I've read. And personally, I find the story of Neanderthals fascinating. Yeah. Apparently, there are major genetic traits that we have today that trace back to Neanderthals, positive ones. And so Absolutely. there's a yeah. stereotype that they were stupid and, and they really weren't stupid. They, they, they no. just weren't as smart as Homo sapiens. My understanding, though, is that we not only bred with them, but we also hunted them to extinction. Is that what you've heard? It's 
Well, that's one theory, but it's possible that it was based on diseases brought in that they couldn't handle. There could be many other reasons. We actually literally just merged with them, is what we're starting to think now, that Homo sapiens just outnumbered them. Mm-hmm. We were organized around much bigger social clans and groups that gave us a big advantage. And eventually they died out, but also merged in the, in the human genome, like you said. And we have a lot of traits now, some of them that are actually beneficial that come from Neanderthals. Yeah. So I'm sure it's not a question that you asked every day, but no. I apologize. <laughs> I apologize okay. for the geeking out here, but sometimes my wife and I will talk about hominids and casual conversations over dinner and stuff. So what can I say? But like another thing, food technology, right? At the time, right? If you don't mind, I want to revisit something you talked about in a recent show about mm-hmm. the goodness paradox, why humans got big brains. Well, yeah, I mean, I, I, we were discussing Richard Rangham's book about the eating habits of early hominids, yeah. and especially in regards to cooking. And his claim is that our big brains came largely from the increased caloric intake that came from cooking. And so he's other primates and animals with a raw plant diet don't have access to as many calories. That's, that was his idea. It's a solid idea. And there's a lot, there's certainly some evidence that, that confirms that in many ways. But I think what I want to just wanted to say was there's also more to it. There's a lot of other points that we could make about it that are related to technology, actually. Because we know Homo habilis had a brain size of about uh, 50% of modern humans, which is about, and chimps are one third of modern humans, to give you some idea. And they preceded fire. They, they, by about half a million years or so. So their brains began to get bigger. Human hominid brains began to increase before this ability to be able to cook and have much more nutrition. But the way they did it possibly is by having tools that could crack marrow bones and get at that meal, which is a very nutritious sustenance. And the tools allowed them to have, you know, be able to ma- access resources they couldn't access before which then in turn may have led to this flourishing of the brain, like not just in terms of nutrition, but also in terms of need. Like, yeah, the ones that were more clever were able to actually get more nutrition and that created a kind of evolutionary process of of natural selection, honestly. It's just interesting because I think that the three most important words in science are, I don't know. And that's the basis of all theorizing. And some theories are supported by more evidence and things like that. And Obviously, this is way above my pay grade to, 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 to weigh in on a controversy like like that as to how you know. But it seems to me like these there were these were all there's so many factors, and you can find so many so much in the fossil record of the different sizes and the different species that were involved in our development. And it's just I don't know the more obviously the more I learn, the more I want to know. <laughs> yeah, well, and actually, honestly. Uh, very little is left behind from that time. The fossil record is actually incredibly scant compared to what was actually there. We're getting a just a tiny fraction of what's of information. So anthropologists are trying to derive these theories. And anthropologists are amazingly conservative scientifically, right? You don't fuck around with evidence. You got to have solid evidence or you're just not even going to be considered. And, and, and things change slowly because, you know, you really do have to, it's the minutia of this evidence that's really important. And so that's why there's a lot of theories, right, around this stuff. Uh, so you can't really make really declarative statements in anthropology that go that far back. I mean, think about how many 10,000 10, generations of, of human, 20,000 generations, 50,000, depending on how far you go back, mm-hmm. and very little left. 
But here's the interesting thing, right? Again, what you talked about in that show is humans are essentially bio-machines, right? That's what we are. And our brain architecture evolved, right? Bigger brains evolved, uh, specific the neocortex in particular, which allows humans to have abstract thinking. So it's not that the brain got just bigger. I mean, some animals have much bigger brains than humans, but then, you know, so it's not really just about brain size, but it's about brain architecture that's really critical to think about too. Well, and our brains actually got a little smaller through the process of domestication. Our skulls got a little, yes. there's a whole domestication syndrome that in one of the side effects of that is making our skulls slightly smaller, but I don't think it, it did. That didn't change. We, we were able to still refine in, into the neocortex and all of our higher thinking. So let's bring this back to the singularity. Uh, can mm-hmm. skip ahead 2 million years. So if it is about brain architecture and about brain size, right? Mm-hmm. Like you said, there are limiting factors to how big brains can get. There's the birth canal, right? I mean, in, in a pre-modern you know, system, it's, it's, it's really having a baby is a really it's a violent act in some ways. So it's a hard thing. It can kill um, you. And it often did. And that limited brain size. But now, all of a sudden, that limit is disappearing right? Because through technology, we can expand our neocortex with devices and connectivity going on the web. We can begin to create this network of connections that actually will, that integrate with our own neocortex and work along with it. And think about that, right? That's what the singularity is really about, right? The size, the physical limits of the human brain are being transcended, by this technology very quickly. And there's even like Kirkwell talks about how nanotechnology will be able to, you know, go into our bloodstream and then into our brains and then interact and integrate with our neurons and then act as a a connection to to the web, to the cloud, and then directly eventually. And because technology is is accelerating so quickly, he predicts this is going to happen at a rate that most people just find hard to believe. So I think you were telling me by 2029, $1,000 device will ostensibly have the same computing power as a human brain, right? Yeah, I think it's still highly possible. I think we're on track for that. Yeah, and by 2045, one single machine could have the combined brain power of the entire human race that costs like $1,000. And that just seems like so far-fetched, but this has tweaked us out a little bit. What is he really talking about? I mean, you know the book really well. Well, okay. So the thing that he talks about in the book a lot is the linear intuitive model. And that is where we think that the future is going to be a lot like the past. We don't understand exponential growth. And by the way, that's the same reason why people don't understand COVID. It's if, If you don't understand exponential, and we're actually on a double exponential, not only are we growing at an exponential rate, but the rate of growth is growing exponentially. So it's very hard for most people to wrap their minds around that this could happen this soon. Yeah, some calculus there. <laughs> yeah, yeah, but okay. So let's just take let's just take this as a theory, and so far it's been pretty accurate. The one thing that I think Kurzweil completely missed were was the implications of the internet. Mm-hmm. He was great with talking about computing devices and a lot of other trends, and even this nanotechnology and and that happening, and robotics. But the network effects have been stunning in a way that I don't feel he addressed in his books. Because in a way, the singularity may be happening even sooner than 2045, because what the singularity really means, it's talking about a term that normally is used for a black hole with an Mm -hmm. event horizon where you cannot see. It's not 
physically possible to see beyond that event horizon. And that's that was the coining of his term, the technological singularity, because we just didn't know what was going to happen. And from, say, an early 2000s perspective, tech really looked very benign and hopeful. It seemed like Wired Magazine put out article yeah. like the long boom, like we're going to have 25 to 50 years of just nothing but growth and all that. And it didn't happen like that at all. And now we're also seeing a lot of bad actors who are having the first mover advantage with tech and it's getting damn scary. As far as I'm concerned, I'm not a, a, a paranoid like Charlie Brooker with Black Mirror. I, I, that series is just the extreme other side of it. Everything's going to go wrong. I'm starting to feel disquieted about the political implications of technology because I don't really feel that way about the tech itself, but just the lack of governance and the kind of regulations I would have hoped for. Well, it's happening incredibly quickly. And I think about when humanity expanded its neocortex through the diet and all that stuff we just talked about, that had profound cultural implications that led to ideology, religion, global culture, ultimately. But it happened over huge periods of time. What we're experiencing now is this, this massive acceleration of change. And of course, it's engendering all kinds of cultural, political, economic change along with it. And so the craziness that you're talking about around the web and so forth is a manifestation of that, I think, in many ways, that it's just happening so quickly. And honestly, much faster than governance can keep up with. That's mm -hmm. why we, that's a big part of the problem. But then on top of that, that creates political chaos, like in political... Uh, opportunists and all of that, which then reverse what government is doing. It's not that government can't keep up, but I try to even make it worse by decreasing the amount of regulations and so forth. If you, okay, so these are people who want to roll back progress, but they can't because progress just keeps happening. Oh God, no. They, they can't roll it back. So what they're doing is they're, the, what the stuff they're doing is actually making it worse. Like, not only are they not rolling back progress, but we're getting the progress, but it's happening unevenly and it's happening with a lot more negative impacts than it could have had. Agreed. Agreed. Yeah. Trying to stop this. I mean, they fundamentally identify change with like immigrants coming in or like people of color wanting social justice, all these cultural things. And that's what they think is causing all this change. And it's just nothing could not be further from the truth. This transformation is coming from this vast rapid technological development that's happening that's affecting the economy primarily, and in turn, it's affecting everything else very rapidly. That's the nature of the change. Their, their aim is completely off. <laughs> they want to stop change. Right? The only thing they're doing, it, like you said, is, is just making the transition a lot more painful. Yeah, well, and ultimately, if you monkey wrench the whole system and civilization collapses, you've stopped change. You have. <laughs> I walk, and the cost is pretty high, right? Yeah. I mean, look at hey, just small little things like what's happening with Texas and so forth. You see how fragile our system is and how, how needy we are for it. And if it collapses, man, I mean, it's just nobody wants that really. You'd have to be totally a loony bin or a complete sociopath to want something like that. But that's what but, these people are because for 5 or 10 or 15% more investment, they could have a completely resilient grid. Yeah. Yeah. So it's just, it's an uh, analogy, right, of, of this larger change that we're going through. We have to have, invest more for everything, right, to make it more resilient and more workable. 
we have to do it. And especially certainly for climate change, but for also to fight pandemics, to deal with nuclear proliferation, to deal with global integration, to deal with new technologies, automation and all that. And this, none of this is really new, Sean. It's just that the newness is that it's happening so much faster. We've had innovation, technological change disruptions forever. In fact, even like robots, robots were conceived of in human history way back thousands of years ago. I mean, you remember Jason and the Argonaut, where you had that giant monster made of like bronze that was throwing boulders at the ship. That was a, literally a robot created by the gods. It was manufactured. That's how the legend saw it. The thing even like picked people up and hugged them and then heated up and burnt them to death. That was one uh-huh. of the ways. That, I mean, it was like t- technological, right? So humans are amazingly imaginative. And, and we, this change that we're seeing now is really a reflection of our past more than people realize. We've always wanted mechanical servants <laughs> from thousands of years ago. And now we have the ability to actually do it. There's so much more we could talk about. I think I'm going to skip ahead a little bit, you know. Sure. Because uh, what's interesting about technology is think about what technology means and what it does for the world. It's an extension. Technology is an extension of our bodies. It allows us to, to work harder, faster, quicker. It allows us to see, hear, visualize better. It allows us to communicate far more efficiently. Right? That's what technology has always been. From the very day that, that some hominid picked up a, a, an implement and started to use it, and what's happening today is technology is giving us far more powerful ways of thinking, processing information, connecting with each other incredibly rapidly. That's essentially where we're at. Automation in the 20th century was mostly about muscle power towards the end, mm-hmm. right? making things much more efficient, much more effective muscle-wise. Towards the end of the 20th century, it became more associated with you know, processing power, calculating power. And now it's, we are literally seeing technology being able to automate cultural power. I mean, it's like it's happening so fast. Well, that's what I was going to say. Tech is it's an amplifier for whatever else is going on. Yeah. So that means that the powerful are going to be the first ones to use it. They're going to have the money to develop it. They're going to be the first ones to be able to buy it and switch over to the new methods. And so later, the innovations trickle down to everybody else. But by that time, the first movers have already locked in their gains in many cases. And on the other hand, though, we can see tech revolutions bubbling up from below, and especially in terms of equal access to information. I mean, you have you know, have African farmers who are, are trading commodities on their cell phones because they have access to that system now to be able to protect themselves from, from problems. And But then on the other hand, a, an ordinary African child will have access to amazing, incredible knowledge for, right. for, edu- for education from their cell phone. It's a huge innovation, but that child also can have their head filled with vicious propaganda from the same device. And the gap though, what's really crazy and interesting and actually cool is that the gap you're talking about between the elites getting this technology and everybody else is getting shorter and shorter, right? I mean, I'm using my smartphone to, to, to record this and I'll tell you, nobody, no, the wealthiest person in the world 10 years ago didn't have a smartphone as good as that one. No. Right? And, and 50 years ago, they, there wasn't a computer that powerful in the world. Exactly. How long did it take before everybody, the, the first dilettantes had cars, automobiles, and then everybody had them? Ooh, it took a few generations. How long did it take for cell phones to go from the elites to, to everybody? A few years, honestly. Yeah. 
You know, it's just, and the same thing is going to happen with like bio, you know, biological technologies, medical technologies too. The elites are going to get them, but then they're going to become so cheap and so readily available that everyone's going to get them. And so this is terrifying and wonderful at the same time. It's hard for me not to, at this point, I, I was the biggest booster of technology, say 20 years ago. I just like, just let's go forward. Let's just damn the torpedoes. And, but relative to where I thought we'd be in the early 2000s right yeah. now, it's looking pretty bleak. I mean, what do you see us ever pulling out of this? Just it seems like we're getting into like a trap almost with technology. Well, I'll tell you, for me, like you, the Trump movie was a gut punch. It took the wind out of me in terms of my optimism about the future, because mm-hmm. a lot of the reasons why they got this movement grew so quickly and so powerfully and was and these and so many conspiracy theories is because of the incredible power of being able to communicate and together so much faster and so much more readily now. And that just magnifies, augmented everything. But how would I don't know. I mean, it's hard to say. Do you know the printing press caused the Reformation essentially, and then the Anti-Reformation, massive wars. But that also led to the democratization of knowledge. It was a lot, you know. So I think the same thing is happening now. The the only concern that both of us have, I mean, all three of us, honestly, on the show, is that we're running out of time. Yeah. That because this change is happening so quickly and we have all these massive problems to, to have to confront right away, I don't know if we have the, le- the luxury of, of waiting for this to resolve itself. So it's really, it, it, it is a bit depressing when you think about it. But Well, know. there's this precautionary principle that people used to talk about and they would try to say, well, let's not go down the road of genetic engineering or let's not go down the road of nuclear or whatever other risky technology you're talking about. But now it's basically, that's just all out the window. Whatever can be done will be done at this point. And it's going to be done probably by some not so good actors. Yeah. I mean, honestly, at this point, there's no way to, to not do that not rely on technological change to fix some of the problems that we have. We, we absolutely devastated the planet's ecosystem so far. I mean, if you look at the statistics about the loss of biodiversity and ecosystems, it's just, it's heartbreaking. I'm literally heartbreaking to understand how much damage has been done to the biosphere. And there's no way to fix that without like some really innovative and widespread technological solutions. But it just isn't. And I think the same thing with, with the internet and trying to rein in some of the craziness around it, it's going to take more technology to do it. <laughs> and it, it seems almost you know, counterintuitive, but how else are we going to do it? Unless everything collapses, like you said, and then it's the end of that. But Well, and, and I think that we are seeing this happen where certain companies are starting to see that it's not in their best interest to enable, say, a President Trump. When he's, we talked about this on one of our other shows, you want a stable democracy as a corporation. You need customers, you need stability, you need predictability, and a bunch of people rushing in and trying to kill the members of Congress is not good for anybody, any business. And more specifically, it's algorithms in social media that are leading to all of these rabbit holes, right? All of these echo chambers. Hey, algorithms can be used in a much more constructive way. You just have to- We talked about this on several different shows- how do you get the Mark Zuckerbergs of the world to say, hey, truth is unprofitable, but I'm going to stand up for it anyway? Yeah. It's really like, again, I'm going back to your idea of systems theory, right? You understand the system and then you kind of mess around with the variables and the components in it to try to promote a certain outcome. And we know 
that social media has these propensities. We know it has this power. And we know the techniques that go along with it, all these algorithmic techniques and, these, and so forth. So the potential is there to shift things around to head towards a much more constructive and creative solution to all of this. You can almost visualize thinking about to channel people into more creative endeavors rather than these destructive endeavors as they per- peruse the web looking for their, the cutest cat they can find, right? Yeah. You know, yeah, it's, a, it's like, and it's, it feels a little bit manipulative, but the manipulation is going to happen no matter what. It's just happening faster and at a bigger scale because I, I was reading somewhere that even the Gutenberg press still hasn't, its entire impact hasn't yet played out 500 years later. So we don't know where this is leading. And all we can do is kind of look at, there was, like you said, there was democratization, but there was incredible disruption at the same time. And if you were living in Europe and you had to participate in those like hundred years long wars, it wasn't, that wasn't any fun. No, absolutely not. And again, like here, when you introduce new technologies like that, especially around communication, there are always disruptions and the disruptions can be very damaging and brutal. That's nothing new and it's happening now. And so in that, in that respect, you can say, okay, we'll just see what happens and wait it out. But again, there's a time limit. And so we don't have the luxury to, to maybe wait a few hundred years before this is resolved. Yeah, we got about maybe 20 yeah. to make sure to get on the right track because of climate and singularity stuff. Yeah, this whole fourth wave of capitalism, whatever it is being called lately, this massive automation that's taking shape this merger of, of human and machine that's taking shape, biotechnologies of all kinds, extension of lives, longevity increasing, all of these things are happening. And they're all going to, are having profound impacts, every single one of them individually. But together, they're creating this sort of feeling like it's, it's overwhelming, like we can't handle this. I'm not convinced that's true. I think maybe we can handle it. We can figure it out. But it's at this point, I can't exactly say how. I mean, it's beyond me how it would happen. But it is possible because as with these technologies also come a lot more possibilities too, a lot of new ways of approaching problems and dealing with problems. We got to remember that we can have good surprises as well as bad surprises. And we <laughs> do, we do, right? Honestly, we've had good surprises along with bad surprises. It's just that everything's so fast and powerful. Like you said, a kid, those kids in Africa who 10 years ago could not have nearly imagined having you know, access to all this information and being able to use it to educate themselves and, and improve their communities and all that. That's a great development. We can't forget about that. At the same time, you also have right-wing movements all over the nationalism growing because of the same technology, largely. I guess it's important also to think about like the transformative power of technology, as I've been trying to say in this in the show, really began prehistory, right? Mm-hmm. And and that gives us insight into what to do about today. I think if you think about it, that seems completely unrelated what hominids were doing. But look at the major historical innovations that humanity has undergone, right? People will point to always point to things like the printing press and the plow, those kinds of things. But those are much, much later in the story, right? Language is a technological innovation in a way, mm-hmm. right? Because it comes from this increased brain size, which allows us to develop a neocortex, and then later on abstraction, which led to language, right? And by the way, uh, Homo habilis is probably the, the first hominid that really started to toy with language, depending on how you define language. Another reason why it's my second favorite. But ne- neocortex developed the power to abstract, to use metaphor and imagery. That led to things like religion, 
larger, what Harari calls intersubjective reality, right? All of these powerful ideologies that really shape the world. Even memes and conspiracies and things like that are all yeah. part of that. Absolutely, right? And that, those come from the latest wave of technology. The alphabet was next and before, way before the printing press. And associated with, once you had the alphabet, you could have a ledger, you could record you know, your purchases and sales. And all of a sudden, the economy takes a leap forward. Cuneiform script, I don't know if you know about that in Mesopotamia. When we first discover how to decipher it, it's like, man, this is just all a bunch of ledgers, mostly what? slaves and grains. You know, <laughs> We, we talked about that in the money episode, that essentially money is record keeping. That's yeah. it. Yeah. Money comes out of that. Money is an abstraction, right? So it's, a, it's, a one, it's a wonderfully powerful abstraction. And so it's all deeply intertwined in the political economy of a culture and a society. And one potential revolutionary thing that we're seeing today, which is about communication and that connection is cybernetics, mm -hmm. right? Elon Musk is working on his Neuralink project. You know about that, I'm sure. And yeah. planting computer chips in the human brain. Yeah. And the thing about, about, about Neuralink, and, and Elon Musk is very right about this, is that <clears> if, we don't, if we don't integrate physically with the technology, we're not going to be able to keep up if we're just using devices, it's, it, we have to have that physical integration to, yeah. to be able to bring the cloud literally within our, and right now our, our, we have our cloud brain, but it's, you have to look at it through your eyes. And so that's slow. You got to read. So the next level of integration thumb is, text. yeah, thumbtacks. And, and, and the next level of integration is going to be direct neural stimulation. And that's where we build the, what Kurzweil calls the hybrid human machine civilization. Yeah. And so as all these previous innovations have reshaped human thinking and human process and human culture, what is this going to do? What is, uh, what, I mean, we can't even predict it, right? Like Kurzweil couldn't predict the internet impact. Like we can't really predict what the implications are, but they could be largely positive. There's no reason to think that they wouldn't be, they could be incredibly, they go in any direction, but. Well, it's very funny because it does remind me of the Borg and. Yeah. There are, it's, it's interesting because in the Borg are, are such a, a unique villain in Star Trek in that once you start to sort of understand them, that there definitely were advantages. I mean, they're very powerful because of their high level of integration. I mean, there's costs right. to the individual. We can't relate to it because we're individuals, but we may actually be moving toward something like that. Possibly. Although I think that's not necessarily the case because... We could also, I mean, like when humans developed ways of moving faster, that doesn't mean we doesn't mean we'd stopped appreciated move walking and running. In fact, in some ways, we have celebrated it in sports. But we're able to go much faster in an automobile, but now we, all of a sudden we created the Olympics and have all of these incredible parts of our culture that are so important to us. And the same thing could happen as we're able to do all of these amazing things cybernetically and so forth. It may reinvigorate the individual in some ways. It's like paradoxical, but you never know. And we can't predict, but everything has a paradoxical result because on the one hand, you go into where you're wired up to this thing, but maybe you're exploring things individually within this virtual world in a way that you couldn't before. So it's just so hard to know because like it's changing so fast. We don't even have the yet the impact of what our current technology is going to do over a couple of generations. But by the time we get a couple of generations, now the technology is even more developed. Right. Yeah, it's hard to keep up with, certainly in terms of policy and, and, and regulations. So it's just happening way too fast. But think about it. Let's say 
Did you ever read uh, William Gibson? Yeah, Neuromancer. Mm -hmm. Neuromancer, and he had like four, three or four novels at that point, and and he predicted this fairly amazingly in some ways. Not completely, of course, but you know, you plug in, you go into the virtual world, and in this virtual world, you have all these new possibilities, including the possibilities of making connections with others that you would not have been able to make before, and, and that leads to all kinds of imaginative possibilities about society and culture and identity. Right. In a lot of ways, uh, William Gibson was ahead of Kurzweil on this because, yeah, because of of, the, of predicting the social implications. Remember, Neuromancer was written in like 1990. Yeah, I read it when it came out. Amazing. Yeah, it was it was one of those books that goes on the top ten list, really, in some ways. But the other thing is, though, our suppositions are not natural laws. We have not gone through the rigorous process of saying this is a natural law. We know Moore's law has worked because it's worked, right? Mm -hmm. It's been incredibly accurate, consistent in its acceleration. The same thing with other things he mentions, right? I don't know if we have the same concurrent certainty about, let's say, understanding human cognition and consciousness. We certainly are making big steps in that direction now, but it's much more, I don't think it's nearly that linear and cons or at least progressive as that is. Complexity itself is a braking system because I can create possible snags in this rapid sort of coalescence of the singularity as some people are, have critiqued the singularity book for. Yeah. Well, and uh, they're not really taking into account sociopolitical trends either. And the pushback yeah. that, that, that the sort of uh, hysteresis really. Right. Uh, Talk uh, about that a little bit. That's an interesting thought. Yeah. Well, hysteresis is an engineering term. It's basically when you place a magnetic force near a material, there's a kind of counter force that creates a delay in the effect of magnetic induction. And politically, I would sort of liken that to the delay in the impacts of policy. So for mm -hmm. example, when Trump took over as president, we were really still living under the Obama policies, the Obama economy. Trump dismantled them one by one. Now that Biden has taken over, now we're dealing with the impacts of Trump's COVID policy from a year ago. So uh, this is really, uh, yeah. th this whole impact is true culturally and technologically as well. Most of the action in a given decade comes from the commercialization of things that were discovered in the previous decade. Mm -hmm. you know, we, right. We've had modern electric vehicles since the Chevy Volt came out in 2010, but it's really the 2020s that are going to see electric vehicles become mass market. Uh, products. And so we can think about the fact that the internet, it reached its critical mass in like 1994, where everybody was signing up, but now recognize that the dramatic political impact it had wasn't until yeah. the 2010s. So there's this just incredible kind of lag and delay that happens. It's becoming more pronounced because as things move faster and then the resistance to the rollout. So Anyway, I had more to say about that, but I, I think you get the point. The Cambridge Analytica scandal, we never thought that would, that would elect a president, that micro-targeting of ads would elect a president. And now we're starting to see pushback the other direction where conservatives are really starting to want to break up Google and Amazon or regulate them heavily in negative ways. Yeah, so, yeah. It's, amazing. It's, yeah. Free marketeers. Oh. But anyway, yeah, that's a great point. And whether or not, although whether or not, you know, this singularity plays out as predicted isn't really something we can, I mean, it's not really the question we need to ask at this point. May, may, it may not. It could be limiting factors. But in the end, I think we need to try to identify these grand processes in ourselves and in our cultures and in humanity. And if we do identify them, like you said, it's a matter of perception, right? If you know what's going on, 
then you can work with the system. You can work to try to mitigate the bad parts and, and promote the good parts. It's one of the reasons why I don't take a lot of these political environmental predictions about doom and gloom to heart all that seriously. I, sometimes I do when I'm feeling down, honestly, it's like, you know, wow. But when I'm feeling a little bit more dispassionate and, and, and stepping back a little bit, I can see that the main drivers of change are fundamentally technological, which in turn radically shapes the rest of society. Change itself is inevitable and it's quickening. We, all, we know all this stuff, right? These are some of the patterns that we see. And we know there are also gonna be some limiting factors the damage caused by the change then will limit the change kind of thing, negative feedbacks, let's say. Mm -hmm. And we also know we have all these issues we have to address, climate change, nuclear proliferation, and so forth. But if we put that all together, the tr technological transformation is going to happen no matter what. And it's incredibly powerful. And incredibly powerful is what we need to solve these problems. That's what yeah. we need. So that's not so bad. That's a little comforting in, in a way. We've created, you know, it's created all these problems, but we also it's created the solutions, potential solutions. It's a race. <laughs> yeah. And so then this is where human agency comes in. We do have some agency in all this. And the agency comes from understanding. If we can understand the processes and we can work with them. And right-wing ideology, conservative ideology is all about trying to resist, resist which means you, you have blinders on, you don't understand what's going on, and that's the worst place you could possibly be. We want to be able to embrace what's happening, not because it's happening, and there's nothing that's going to stop that from happening one way or another. We can take the benefits or we can just crash and burn the whole thing. Yeah. I mean, that's ultimately the only thing that could stop it is that if we had, did have a collapse of modern 21st century civilization. That would stop it, but nobody wants that because of the implications. 90% of the planet, human civilization would be gone, at least. Uh, it's like a giant house of cards falling. Civilization is built on one layer on top of another, on top of another, on top of another. It's multiple layers, right? And if it collapses, there's no rebuilding it again. No, there's not. Well, one of the things, though, is that a lot of people think if they can stop it in America, they can stop in the world. And they're incredibly wrong. I mean, China is just coming on so strong and they have a lot of science. They're doing a lot of basic science and, and research, and they're pushing a lot of this stuff forward in ways that, that we haven't. And True. They're, they're leapfrogging us. So these conservatives may be trying to crash the system to stop progress, but what they may end up doing is just crashing America. Yeah. And honestly, first of all, America can't stop it. That's number one. But if it could, then what, it, what would happen is it would, pro it would benefit other places in the world like China. And not just China, by the way, but China primarily right now, because they would just pick up the slack. It would right. happen and, and we would be less privileged at, at the end. We would, be, we would have lost anything that we could have managed to gain from this process of change. We'll get to see what it'd be like to be a, de a, a, a developing country. <laughs> hey, listen, I'll tell you, we've, we, it's, it's been such a slow grind until recently that we don't realize how much we've lost. There's a lot of ways that the United States is, is looking a lot more like third world countries. And this is from somebody who's lived in third world countries and traveled in them. I have to not lived, but traveled for sure. A, the way people think about their own lives in particular, not necessarily the the land, the political landscape and, and so forth. But the way people think about their prospects right now mm -hmm. is, is very different than it used to be. Young people today are thinking, are, they're in survival mode, a lot of them. What can I do in my life to survive this fucking country is what they're thinking. They're thinking, oh, I want to have this great career. And I want. Some of them are thinking that. 
but a lot of them aren't. They're really literally like, how am I going to fit here? What am I going to do to be able to, to have a life? That's, yeah, what, just, that's the level that they're at. Well, really lowered expectations and yeah. then doing things like, oh, let me see if I can find a tiny house to live in, or let me see if I can bunk in with 30 other people in a warehouse to save money yeah. because I'm not making any money. And so it's just this downward mobility. And that wasn't the case when I was in my teens and 20s, honestly. Not, certainly not for me and my friends. Certainly it was for some people. I shouldn't be too rosy about it. Certainly in terms of like some communities are much less privileged than I was in the middle class community and white and all that. But still, even to said all that, within those once privileged communities, now you're seeing the same anxiety. You're seeing that level of anxiety that you weren't seeing before that's more common with less privileged communities. And obviously, this is then, then woven into the whole resistance against change and then woven into the sort of the right-wing ideology about growing multiculturalism and the blame all goes there and completely ignore capitalism and completely ignore technological innovation and change and see all of the, these struggles being caused by the fact that we're losing our white Christian heritage. It's just, and ultimately they're just making the whole situation um, far worse, even for themselves. Far worse. How do you, get, how do you, you reach them? I don't think you can, but what we can do is we can get the message out for those who are have an open mind and an ear that have not been totally colonized by these ideologies. Yeah. Well, I tell you, I mean, this was a great show, Joe. And as always, you make me think and think about these things in a little bit differently than I would on my own. And that's why it's great to have you on the team. And you know, if we want to make the progress, we have to get the ideas right, which is why I'm so excited to have these conversations and produce the show every week. And yeah, I just it's been a great experience. Yeah, I just want to thank you for a great first episode with for you hosting and hopefully the first of many more to come. So thanks for all your hard work and insights. Thank you very much for the kind words. And I also want to thank you for the opportunity to be part of this great project. I, I respect you and Christoph very much. I think you guys have some real strong ethics and some great ideas and you have a lot of energy and motivation and that's what we need. So whatever I can do to be of service to that spirit, I will do. And to end it, I would say, you know, we, we here at the Radical Secular embrace the change, honestly. Even though it is unnerving at times, for sure, as, as we talked about, we embrace it. And we encourage you to do the same. That's ride this pony. It's just like, don't run away. Think about how to make it better, not how to make yeah. it worse. Yeah. What can we do? You know, what's our human agency here? How can we make this work, both for ourselves and for our communities and our country and, our, and the world? That's what it's all about. Yeah, change. Let's do it. If you like our show, uh, make sure to subscribe and leave a review. That would be great. Check out the RadicalSecular.com new website. Tell your friends to listen. New episodes post on Mondays at noon Eastern on YouTube and all the major podcast channels. If you're uh, into reading, check out the blog at RadicalSecular.com as well. It's got some great content. I'm Joe Kipinti. Thank you for being here. Remember, wherever you are, you can be radically secular. You've been listening to the Radical Secular Podcast, dedicated to the separation of church and state and the pursuit of justice. For full video episodes, please subscribe to our YouTube channel.